Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe, a weekly program of table talk with scholars and artists about research in the formation and circulation of knowledge. I'm Thomas Hill. I'm very delighted to have on the program today two guests, Miriam Cohen, Evelyn Clark, Professor of History, and also Mark G. Seidel, Special Collections Librarian and Cataloger, both here at Vassar College. They are talking with us about the exhibition of materials now on view on the Vassar College Library's website entitled Votes for Women, Vassar and the Politics of Women's Suffrage, honoring the centenary of the 19th Amendment passed into law in 1920. The exhibit was curated by Mark and can be found online through a link on the Library Cafe website at library-cafe.org. Welcome, Miriam and Mark. Hi. Thank you. This is an exhibition that we would ordinarily have had in our exhibit cases in the Thompson Memorial Library at Vassar, but because of the pandemic and the fact that the campus is closed to the Poughkeepsie community, we've limited it to an online exhibit, which means on the plus side that we don't have to take the exhibit down. It will remain accessible through the foreseeable future. I think that's the case, isn't it, Mark? Yeah, the link should stay live and will be accessible off of the digital library page. Can either of you talk about how the idea of this exhibit then came about and about the process of finding and assembling these materials? I can say a little something about how it came about from what I remember. And Mark should say something about the assembling of the materials. And he may know something too about how it came about. But I was approached by Ron Patkus, head of special collections, in March of 2019, I believe, because they planned these things well in advance, indicating for the centennial commemoration, he wanted to have an exhibit, which I thought was great. And he asked me if I could write an accompanying essay, which I also thought was great that he wanted something like that Mm -hmm. to put it into a larger context. And so I was very eager to do it. And I was glad to see that he was doing what so many people were doing at the time. Looking forward to 2020, Mm -hmm. little did we know the kind of year, but looking forward to the commemoration Mm -hmm. and thinking about how various institutions, museums, libraries, universities could participate, colleges. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff online if you cast around. I think LC has an exhibit and there are other institutions that have great exhibits up also. And then Mark, I assume we have a collection of materials on suffrage at Vassar that you were able to dive into, right? Yes, the challenge as a curator was going through that material and trying to select from that large amount of material a set of materials that could represent a more or less coherent story about Vassar's contribution to the women's suffrage movement. And yeah, it was a challenge. And there were moments where I thought, how can I possibly do this? How can I, <laughs> how can I possibly select from so much good material? But Like any research project, there's that period of just kind of wallowing around with the materials and spending time with them and thinking about them. And eventually, a set of materials kind of rose to the surface that I thought and and that in consultation with Miriam thought would present, you know, a reasonably unified and compelling story of Vassar's involvement with the movement. Mm-hmm. And then we've all this time been collecting material on our own history, haven't we? Going back to the days of Lucy Maynard Salmon when she was collecting ephemera of various kinds. So we've got all these broadsides and posters and photographs documenting what Vassar students were doing in the period. Yes, we do. And, and that's an ongoing project, of course. The college archive side of special collections is always taking in new material. Mm-hmm. We're always getting donations from alumni and families of alumni so that it's a documentary history that's 
always growing and mm. hopefully will continue to grow forever. Well, one of the fun things about this too is when we went through some of this and I had a couple of some students doing some of the work is to discover things that were really uh, interesting and part of this larger history. I mean, it's helpful to be able to put faster into the large history with books and histories of suffrage and then discover we had some things. For example, we have somebody's diary of when they were in jail in 1917 being forced fed. And of course, we've had that for years. And I think periodically it may get rediscovered, but we only sort of rediscovered it in this recent reiteration of looking at faster. So yeah. that's sort of fun too. So the exhibit is organized chronologically, right, Mark? I mean, the materials are at least. It is. It's organized chronologically and topically. There's a section on early Vassar, followed by a section of the suffrage movement, the period in which it really grew and captured the imaginations of the students in the first years of the 20th century. So that kind of rough thematic and chronological organization helps to give the exhibit its coherence. Mark and I spent some time, it was, as historians always do, going back and forth mm-hmm. about how much to make it completely chronological, but we're trying to highlight certain themes. So it's fairly chronological, but you know, sometimes certain dates come up after they've been presented in a different way earlier, but that's always the case. You know, the thing that excites me about this kind of an exhibit and this kind of a collection is that you only know who you are in terms of an institution, and the institution can only know itself by looking back to where it was or who it has been, right? And this Vassar that I read in this exhibition is very much, you know, the Vassar I see around me in faculty and students. And that seems to me extremely important that we keep conscious of this history if we're going to know how we move forward in the future. And this is a wonderful history, actually. So, you know, I just wanted to bring that up myself. I think that's a great point. And there's a long history, as all three of us know, of progressive activism Uh at Vassar. And in my work on curating this, I mean, I've really come to see this as one of the sort of foundational moments of that Mm -hmm. history, the women's suffrage work and the work that many of these activists did in other causes along with women's suffrage, because as Miriam points out so well in her essay, women's suffrage was only one of several progressive causes in which student and faculty activists were involved. And they didn't really see women's suffrage as separate from these other causes. And I think that has continued right to the present moment in Vassar's history. So the interesting thing about this is it goes back right to the beginning of the college. The exhibition really starts with Matthew Vassar himself here, doesn't it? And the first part of the exhibit is about that early period, that 19th century period of the college before suffrage really takes off as a political force in the 1890s when the progressive movement really gets underway. But it gets underway after the Civil War, really. And in that opening section, we have documents and photographs that illustrate the first couple of decades of the college going back to 1865. So I suppose the question is, how does suffrage in general become an issue after the Civil War, almost immediately after the Civil War, as well as women's suffrage in particular? And then the follow-up question is, where does Matthew Vassar fit in here? Just elaborating a little bit on how the essay begins. You know, the question of citizenship and citizenship rights is really at the forefront of the kinds of things that were compelling people 
after the Civil War. And it wasn't necessarily completely clear. And the struggle over the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, with the 14th Amendment in theory guaranteeing African Americans equal rights, and the 15th trying to reinforce it in terms of the vote, raises questions about citizenship rights. And these were the same questions that many of the folks who had been active as abolitionists in favor of the Union cause, both involved in abolitionism, but also the women's movement, both black and white activists, then pick up again after the war. In some ways, people set some of that aside after the war. Then when um, the struggles are underway, and they were deep struggles because they were resistant to reconstruction and to what there was going to be a 15th amendment enforcing African-American voting rights and stuff. The question of women then comes to the fore as well. That's certainly part of that struggle. And then Matthew Vassar, certainly he's promoting women's education because he builds a women's college at the urging of his niece, because he wanted to build a hospital like Gay's Hospital in London that he'd seen, but she talked him into building a women's college. First institution like it in the country, there were female seminaries, but there weren't degree-granting colleges, right? So he is a progressive person in this. So how does he feel about the suffrage movement early on? Wow. Do we know? Yes, we know quite vividly, actually, <laughs> his position on women's suffrage. He was very supportive of it, and he saw it as a piece with the mission of the college of educating women to be full participants in the national life of the United States. And we can get some details about his position from a letter that he wrote to a Miss Powell dated 28th April, 1868, in which he laments that women are denied suffrage along with criminals, paupers, and idiots, quote unquote. He's drawing there on a long-standing legal formulation mm. that denied the vote to criminals, paupers, idiots, and women. You know, it's, it's a very elitist and exclusionary formulation. And he certainly wasn't alone in doing that and pointing to that as a poor justification for denying women the vote. But again, he was very supportive of women's suffrage and saw that as a natural extension of the mission of a college like Vassar. Somewhere, I remember reading a quote, it may be in his diary, that he compared himself to Abraham Lincoln in this, where he said, Abraham Lincoln freed the Negro and Matthew Vassar freed women. Uh, and he doesn't include African-Americans in that formula there, does he? Because it would have been completely counter to the whole Civil War effort, right? He was a Union supporter, right? Yeah. So then there was an effort then early on to bring suffragists onto campus to speak, wasn't there? And actually, there was an effort to bring Elizabeth Cady Stanton to campus in the 19th century, wasn't there? Her daughter was a student here? Yes, her yes. daughter was a student. In those days, there wasn't, you know, as her daughter and she both lament that much interest on campus. But in fact, right, as Mark, we have in the exhibit, right, she does speak on campus. She was invited to speak by Mariah Mitchell, yes. the very famous uh, professor of astronomy at Vassar. And she did come to speak, but she came to be rather disillusioned with Vassar College. She found that the sort of general campus climate to be, among the students in particular, to be indifferent to women's suffrage. And so she didn't accept any further invitations to speak. Right. And her daughter felt that way at the time. I mean, Ambassador at the time, it really wasn't until later 
that the students became more interested mm -hmm. in it, more involved in the movement. And so that period in the 19th century is not a period of a great deal of discussion. Mm -hmm. But Mariah Mitchell was very pro-suffrage, and a number of the activist women who were students, whether it was Harriet Stan Blanche, Julia Lathrop, they look back on Mariah Mitchell fondly, and they talk about her, how important she was as an inspiration, and that they remember that she brought interesting people, like some of the suffragists, uh -huh. to campus. And so, whereas the time, it was not a real source of a lot of activity among the students. There were a couple, and then it became more important. But there were yeah. faculty on campus, right? At least a handful, like Lucy Salmon herself. Yes, in the late 1880s, Lucy Maynard Salmon, Laura Wiley, Gertrude mm. Bach, and they are suffragists, but they are then running up against a problem with the president, James Monroe Taylor, who had very strong feelings about keeping political stuff, suffrage and other things off campus. And so Laura Wiley, Lucy Maynard Salmon, they really chafed against the restrictions on campus. They moved to the city of Poughkeepsie and pursue, just as Mark was talking about before, not only activities around suffrage, but other social issues. So that's true. And so they mark the beginning of that, but they're in struggle. And then that struggle over what can be done on campus. Yeah. And that's, I think, one of the interesting aspects of as you were talking about, Tom, learning the history of the college, because it was around suffrage in some ways, but it was building because of a whole series of issues that the students were interested in, that there really is a confrontation about to what extent should education be incorporating this kind of thing? Should what extent should it go on on campus? Mm -hmm. And they push Taylor. You know, there's a little bit of civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. He ultimately resigns in 1913, and a new administration comes in with a different attitude. And in some ways, that's the moment that ever since then, Vassar has never really taken a similar kind of position about that. It really came to a head in that time period during this activist progressive era. In the exhibit, the central document here for this is the address by James Monroe Taylor to the trustees in 1909 that articulates the administration position toward including progressive political opinion and political debate even in the curriculum as being antithetical to the educational mission of the college, right? And I remember this argument being repeated on campuses during the Vietnam War. You know, we're an educational institution. We're not political. We don't want politics on campus. So it's an old argument, but it's a very interesting part of the exhibit here. Yes, and, you are right in one form or another. It never was prohibited in the way that Taylor did, but in one uh, form or another, there's struggles about this. Yeah. So is there any merit at all to the argument to play devil's advocate? And I suppose the question is, should education be above politics, quote unquote, or is education by its nature fundamentally progressive? And progressive is the word here. I mean, we're talking about the progressive movement in the late 19th century, right? And then Matthew Vassar's vision of education being available to women was certainly a progressive idea. So is there any merit to Taylor's letter? To Taylor's letter. What I will say is that this was a fundamental debate that was mm -hmm. going, also about pedagogy, because those folks like Salmon, like Gertrude Buck, like Laura Wiley, like Herbert Mills in economics, were very much influenced by progressive philosophers who were working out ideas about education that were not just sort of forward thinking in the way that Matthew Vassar was forward thinking about admitting women, but who really were working out notions about what is education, what is epistemology. And I hear John Dewey would be the, mm -hmm. uh -huh. the great example. They were really very much influenced by that. And they were talking to their 
friends and colleagues both around the country and transnationally, you know, that somehow education, the best education, was education in which the questions that involved the society at large were some piece of what was important, what was interesting, that you are learning things on some level because they are of interest and importance to the society at large. And that could mean anything. It didn't mean you have to necessarily do a project. Mm -hmm. about the community, but it meant the questions that you asked about the world, the things you were learning, even, you know, the kind of the historical work you were going to do, Lucy Maynard Salmon would be important mm -hmm. there. You wanted to get a best hold that you could over the history of the past, but you understood that many of the questions you were asking were framed by the present mm -hmm. and that the way we look at history and we mm. certainly know that today, whether it's the Civil War or what have you, is framed by that. And that the best kind of education would allow people to see the connections between what mm. they were learning and the larger society. That was a huge debate. And Taylor's attitude was no. I mean, there were many who said no. Yeah. We want to really keep those social questions off the table. Yeah. But they were pretty clear. And that's what they began teaching courses on labor economics, mm. the questions that they believed the larger society should be concerned about. So it wasn't just Taylor, it was Woodrow Wilson also, right? Wilson <laughs> was not, shall we say, very sympathetic to women's suffrage, to say the least. He ultimately gets pushed. And he's not sympathetic to women's suffrage. And as a Southerner, I have to say, he was deeply suspicious about a federal amendment mm -hmm. because he was a big states' rights kind of person. So whereas Wilson becomes increasingly committed and connected to what we would call progressive social causes, minimum wage, child labor, federal income tax, he becomes you know, very much oriented in that direction. He was part of the tide, partly that, and the self-determination of peoples, which was his thing. He was reluctant on suffrage. And so I see that more as the endorsement of the suffrage because Taylor was writing this in the context of his fight with mm -hmm. the faculty and students about bringing suffered stuff on campus. I don't know, Mark, what, do you have anything to say about that in terms of your reading of that? He was writing it, this was of course before he became president of the United right. States, he was writing it from his position as the president of Princeton. That's true. Which of course was a men's institution and so right. he was coming at it from a different point of view in that sense, but I suspect he shared Taylor's view of education as something as separate from and, you know, quote unquote, higher than the kind of messy events of the contemporary moment. And in writing to Taylor, he was voicing his support for that view of education. So students were also getting involved at this time. And, you know, some names really jump out at you. Lucy Burns, for one, uh, Crystal Eastman, Max Eastman's sister, right. and also Inez Mulholland. And these are Vassar students who get caught up with the suffrage movement and become politicized and become politicals, actually. And we do feature them in the exhibit, right? So any thoughts about this trio? It's interesting because Burns and Eastman graduate earlier. They're older a little bit, but they are influenced by the work that they do with Lucy Maynard Salmon, Herbert Mills. Inez Melham is really in the thick of the confrontation mm -hmm. with Taylor. 
But all of them are examples of what Mark was talking about, of activists later, in particular, Eastman and Milholland become associated with suffrage, but with other issues as well. Milholland's most famous was suffrage, but she was involved with helping labor unions and women mm-hmm. organizing the labor movement. She was a member, her father's one of the founders of the NAACP. She promoted Black voting rights, as Crystal Eastman as well. Eastman, as you were saying, was not only active in the suffrage movement, but one of the founders of the American Civil Liberties Union, promoted women's reproductive rights, was concerned about women's work opportunities, really, Milholland too, but Milholland died very young, really were confronting issues about what's a modern marriage supposed Mm -hmm. to be like and what should men and women be sharing in terms of the family as well. What's love in a marriage? And so they had a variety of causes. Lucy Burns becomes also influenced by some of the work she did as a student, was like Milholland, spent some time in England, was extremely influenced by the militant suffragists, the Pankhursts, and worked with them and was jailed with them. And she would become founder with Alice Paul of the National Woman's Party and be that fulcrum of that more militant wing of the suffrage movement that pushes for the federal amendment in the early 20th century. And as somebody said, Lucy Burns was exceedingly media savvy in her day. Mm -hmm. And she was really one of the ones pushing behind the picketing of Woodrow Wilson in the White House because he was leading a war for democracy in which he himself was refusing to support women's suffrage. So she was, in some ways, Alice Paul is considered the general, the leader of the Women's Party, but Mm. Lucy Burns was the the charismatic figure, and she was, as one of our own people who wrote the jail notes we have, uh, helped us all when we were all in jail, you know, forced fed and Mm -hmm. whatnot. This happened during the First World War when Wilson was president, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So this is long after her Vassar years. So early on, there seem to be intertwined and related causes here with regard to suffrage, which include suffrage for Native Americans, African Americans, of course, and women. And does this make for a lack of solidarity? And does it cause friction? I mean, the exhibit is about this, of course, to some extent, hence I'm asking the question. Does it cause friction and maybe even hypocrisy among these causes, since the forces arrayed against them use this as a way of fracturing what should be a common cause in American democracy? You're certainly right when we, we, do, we talk a little bit about the real limitations of the vision of democracy on the part of many of the white women who refuse to see the way in which this issue for African-American women should be equally as important mm-hmm. for them. And it's a fundamental right of women. And so there was friction. But I think it's also important to point out, and this gives an opportunity to promote the upcoming lecture that we have from <laughs> Robin Muncy, virtual on November 12th, that so much wonderful work is being done on suffrage in the last decade or so. And we've uncovered so much diverse activism and multi-ethnic activism, which in some ways has strengthened the movement. Whether it was uh, Native Americans also marching in these parades and making demands, certainly the trade union movement, which was made up of so many ethnic women, the incredible determination of African-American activist women who pushed suffrage as well are partly what made this movement vibrant. And there were many moments in which these coalitions were critical. And you can see that the best on the local level during local campaigns for suffrage state by state, because many states were enacting suffrage first before the 19th Amendment. Of course, in some places, most of it in the South, not all, the race 
issue, of course, racism and the maintenance of white supremacy made it impossible to have that kind of coalition and solidarity. On the national level, the leaders of the suffrage movement worried about that a lot and therefore and it was not enough of a priority for them. So they were less than supportive of the African-American women who were pushing, particularly mm-hmm. in the South. But there were places of tremendous coalition, New York, the state of New York in 1917, which passed finally. Their suffrage, it was a multi-ethnic, and the African-American women who were active in New York, and New York City in particular, were part of it and were critical. So the answer, I think, is both a little Mm -hmm. bit. But the vibrancy of the movement in some ways, out West, Hispanic women, very Uh, important. uh We're learning so much more than Mm -hmm. the story of those white women who were, you know, limited at best. And they weren't all. Ennis Mulholland is sort of interesting in the exhibit in this, and that she feels she's being used by this kind of white coalition among the suffragists, but she doesn't want to be used. She's married, forget her views on open marriage, and those of her husband, who goes on when she dies to marry Edna St. Vincent Millay in in an open marriage. But she feels she's used, and I thought that was interesting. Yes, and she, some of us, her own biographer said, you know, she becomes a certain kind of symbol, you know, Mm -hmm. of white womanhood and hetero sexuality. I think there's been such good work uh, on the historians of the queer aspects of suffrage and the way in which so many of the women were trying to confront that image of mm-hmm. mannishness and all these women who didn't get married to men and you know there was something wrong and mannish about all of them pushing suffrage by having Milhan out there as the symbol and the media sensation. But she was. Not to say that she herself didn't have her own flair. I mean, the horse and the the parading, you know, was not something she obviously shrunk from. And she, the daughter of one of the founders of the early leaders of the NAACP, pushed African-American voting rights. But then to a point, you know, they always, when it came to the 1913 parade, and Alice Paul said, if if a group of African-Americans are going to march as a group, I'm going to segregate them. At first, she tried to ban the Howard University women marching as a group. When she couldn't do that, she segregated them, although there were African-American women scattered throughout the parade. You know, Milholland led the parade, right? Yeah, so, exactly. you know, I yeah. mean, it's, you're right. It's complicated and flawed, but and it was to a point, yeah. you'd have to say, on the race question. President McCracken, the president who succeeds Taylor, was part of this force, yes? Uh, I mean, they had him out. He's part of the success of the political campaign to get suffrage voted in, right? In New York, he's extremely important, yes, isn't he? he? Is. Yeah. And there, you know, and he plays this interesting role where he says, I'm not speaking, you know, he went around speaking for suffrage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and said, but I'm not speaking directly to the referendum that's on the ballot now in 1917, yeah. because I'm president of the institution, and so I can't yeah. do that. Nevertheless, he was quite outspoken, and he was active. And some people on the board were really angry about it. I mean, there mm. was he was almost fired. Yeah. <laughs> that and for other sort of his social political act, and kind of people who came to his defense were like Lucy Maynard Sound. Yeah. Vassar isn't actually admitting African-American women at this point in its history, is it? Although, you know, there was an African-American student, but no one knew she was African-American. That's right. And that was similar to a situation that happened in Holyoke, where they early on had an African-American, except they didn't realize that she was African-American, and but they let her stay, you know. Yeah. But yeah, no, that's part of the history, and it's an interesting and troubling aspect of the history. It was not until the 1940s that Vassar openly admitted African-Americans, and it varied within the Seven Sisters. 
So that's a piece of our history that we, you know, yeah, need, need to acknowledge. Or yeah. yeah. One thing about history is it can tell you who you were and it can tell you who you want to be, but it can tell you who you don't want to be anymore also, can it? So, but it's important to bring these things up as in psychotherapy in a way. Um, I sometimes exactly. Think. Well, that's right. I think that's one of the reasons historians do believe that mm -hmm. These discussions of the Civil War and who really are these people mm -hmm. um, matter, you know, mm -hmm. because it is part of confronting, you know, the prologue to our lives right now. Female suffrage then is passed into law in 1920 with the 19th Amendment. But this, of course, isn't the end of the story of voting rights in the United States, is it? So is suffrage still an issue? That's the question, I suppose. Well, I think it's absolutely. I remember when Mark was selecting this, because we didn't want to end it in 20, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we have, you know, we're limited in how much you can have, right, is one of the first things, though, is a discussion of the fact that Vassar students were going to go south to help with voting rights. Because... I mean, the reality is, is that we had the 19th Amendment and it did protect white women. But as others have pointed out, including Sherilyn Eiffel recently at Vassar, the 15th Amendment in terms of protecting people by race was hardly protecting African-Americans, so many of whom still lived in the South. And that was a huge struggle. And that wasn't the only struggle. To the extent that Asian Americans were not citizens, mm -hmm. they were denied the vote. In the middle of the 20s, indigenous Americans were in theory made citizens and were supposed to be able to vote. But very few states actually allowed that. And in many areas, the Latinx had to struggle as well. So this is ongoing. And there mm -hmm. have been moments of great victories in that. Mm -hmm. The 65 Voting Rights Act was critical. African-American women played a huge role. So did some white, faster women were active. But we're seeing that. Well, we're seeing that today in this election, aren't we? Suffrage oh. is the issue on the news, isn't it? Absolutely, so. because among other things, the Voting Rights Act enforcement was gutted. Oh, yeah. It was gutted. And as a result of the gutting of the enforcement, I mean, what was key to the 65 Voting Rights Act was the provision that in a whole host of states, including some places in the North, but it was mostly Southern, with a history of racial discrimination, you couldn't set up election laws. The United States election is pretty much run by the states, but you couldn't change things without pre-clearance from a supervisory board. That was the teeth in the 65 Voting Rights Act. In 2013, the Supreme Court decided five to four. It was one of the pretty sure it was five. It was one of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's great dissent. I think it was five to four, but they decided in the majority that you didn't need that enforcement anymore. Racism is over when it comes to voting, and it's unfair to make those states pretty clear. Hmm. And once that was lifted, the supposed called remedy is, well, take me to court later. Mm -hmm. So you people lost poll sites that were in African-American areas. People began all kinds of voter ID laws that are very mm -hmm. hard for people who may be poor. Redistricting was done in a way to discriminate and limit the power of my, certain groups, including African-Americans. And all that now, you don't have to pre-clear. And so it really took the teeth out of it. And that is why we're in the struggle we're in now. Hmm. And suffrage is an ongoing issue in another way as well. You know, pretty much every election cycle in the last few years, the issue of whether or not Vassar students are able to vote here in Dutchess County continues to be a source of controversy where many students argue that because they live here pretty much full time during their years at Vassar, that they should be allowed to vote in the elections that impact their lives while they're here. However, there are many local 
elected officials who argue the opposite, that students are really transient and that they can exercise their right to vote in their home states and communities. And so, and again, this gets played out just about every election cycle. Um, around so, here. Yeah, Mark included something, right? Of the 2012, right? In the exhibit, right? I did, I did. But there are instances even more recent than that. Right. And this issue of voter suppression is multivarious. You know, we're the big struggle in the courts here in Dutchess County over whether Bard College could have a polling site on its campus to make it safe for students, even if it was going to be open to other people as well. It is a continuing problem. So that's exactly right. That's a continuum. Yeah, the struggle continues. So. Yes. So there are two names that I wanted to bring up in the exhibit. One was Harriet Stanton Blatch and then Hazel Hallinan. Were they people who were active after the passage of the 19th Amendment? Harriet Stanton Blatch becomes exceedingly important. Mm-hmm. She forms an organization in New York for women where she's trying to unite wealthier women and working class women to push for the vote. Very active in New York. Later, right, Mark, she goes on, right, to run. We have something in there, not only from her early days, right, but from later after the amendment. Yeah, right away in 1921, she runs for city office in New York on the socialist ticket and on a platform of child education and welfare. She really wanted to scrutinize the finances of the city and make sure that sufficient funding was going for education and other kinds of social support for for children. And Hazel Hallinan, you mentioned, Tom, she continued with the struggle for women's rights for decades after the passage of the 19th Amendment. And she was deeply involved with the campaign for the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s and even met with Jimmy Carter during his presidential administration to advocate for that. And she's an interesting example, too, as Mark puts in his prologue about some of the women who may be lesser known. Mm -hmm. But arrested, extremely militant, arrested for picketing uh, and criticizing the president. And she was in jail more than once Mm -hmm. and then lived the rest of her life. She did some stuff in labor and indeed got involved in the ERA. Mm -hmm. Susan Ware in her book, her most recent book about the suffrage movement, decided to take a look at a group of sort of lesser known women to see what they did, what their life was like. And Hazel Hallam is one of those women. Her full papers are at the Schlesinger, Mm -hmm. which is where Susan Ware directs that in the library. And so she's a good person to choose, but she's a good example of the somewhat lesser known. Vassar had loads of women active Mm -hmm. in the Women's Party and I keep, I don't know, Mark gets these emails too. Some of them, we all get different emails from various alums, you know, who write to us and say, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, my mother was active in this and she was in Connecticut and this place and that. And sometimes I have to write and say, yes. And there are people, you know, couldn't cover everybody. It's really true. Yeah. And as a graduate of Vassar myself, you know, getting the kinds of emails that Miriam was talking about and just in the process of putting this exhibit together, you know, I, I just, I felt this sort of, renewed flush of pride in my alma mater for the really amazing group of graduates that it educated and sent out into the world to do the, the great things that they did on behalf of women's suffrage and all the other progressive causes that they were involved in. It's really who Vassar is, isn't it? The people that have gone before us. And I, I have often found the culture of this institution is passed on orally. It's not something that the administration, you know, types out memos and sends us down or that they often have any idea of, actually because administrators tend to be transients themselves, honestly. 
But, you know, it comes through the faculty, this whole history. And it comes to some extent out of faculty, like Lucy Salmon, who is often quoted, you know, on campus, her adage that the education ambassador is about going to the source and is about primary materials, which for her included records of evidence like menus and train schedules and other written texts. So I guess my question is, does this kind of an exhibit fold into how we see student research as a means of education? Yeah, I think it does very much. I mean, in just in, in the way that it draws upon that kind of primary source material mm-hmm. that Salmon, that we might think of as just, that's just that's just the way you do history. I mean, how else would you do history? Yeah. But at the time when, when Lucy Maynard Salmon was coming into fully her own in her career as a historian, that was a relatively, if I understand sort of the, the history of the development of the profession correctly, that was a relatively new way of seeing how one did history, that kind of social history. Yeah. And the collection and preservation of that kind of material is absolutely central to our mission in special collections in the library and to support that as part of the larger mission of the college. We invite students and outside researchers to come in to use that material to go to those sources, mm-hmm. <laughs> to, um, to paraphrase Salmon, and try to use them to put together the historical narratives that those sources suggest. Right, and it reflects that piece of that progressive education that moment in the history of epistemology pedagogy in which uh, the folks who were pushing this were saying that yes students maybe need to learn where it fits in terms of what other historians have said about something but education should be an active experience Uh and hands-on and students are capable not just vassar students but much of this was being tried out in communities ordinary folks are capable students and others of writing the histories and looking at the sources themselves and writing and composing and creating good histories themselves by going to the source, not just reading about what other great thinkers have said. And so that's... One of the things that Salmon does is that she seems to introduce research into undergraduate education. I don't think I'm overstating it there. And that she wanted seminar rooms in the college and another area where she butted heads with Taylor, he'd never heard of such a thing. What are seminars? But she had studied under Charles Kendall Adams, who goes on to be president of Cornell. He was at Michigan when she was there studying, and she knew the Humboldt German research-based educational model, which was, up until then, it was for graduate students. It was, you know, it wasn't for causing people to learn how to learn so much as it was for just compiling research and training people how to do research. But she brought that into undergraduate education. When she built the library, she and Marie Clark Thompson got together And Marie paid for nine seminar rooms around the core of the library, in the library. So we were probably the first institution to have seminar rooms in a library and one of the first institutions to have undergraduate research as part of the curriculum. So really revolutionary when you think about it. Can we go back a little bit? I just want to say one thing to sort of set the historical record straight about the earlier years in Vassar. And it's in our exhibit as well. Not everybody early on was on board with suffrage, not the students. And more and more, that would be the case as we move into the 20th century. But suffrage was debated on campus, even though Taylor didn't want, suffrage was debated, and there were people who were anti-suffrage. And I mean, New York, for example, had a very hard time passing suffrage for a variety Mm -hmm. of reasons in 1915, not the least of which was an organization of women opposed to suffrage, Mm -hmm. headed by a Vassar 
student, Josephine Dodge, who actually didn't graduate faster, left to go to Europe. Her father was in the diplomatic corps, but became famous, a famous anti-suffragist. So, so Schlafly, huh? And made the case, you know, that women have a role in the civic sphere. She was certainly involved in a variety of things, mm. but they shouldn't sell themselves with the vote. Mm. And that's the rough and tumble world of men that we do not want to be. Our importance as moral exemplars will be compromised yeah. by that. So it's not totally one way, yeah. but it certainly became increasingly more. I shouldn't let you go without talking about the one event featured in the exhibit. It's referred to as a suffrage in the cemetery event in Calvary Cemetery right next to the college here, just north of the college on College View Avenue uh, that uh, occurred in 1908. And there really should be a plaque there designating this as a historical event. So could you just mention that the suffrage in the cemetery event? Well, in fact, that really did mark that moment when Annals Mill Holland decided to confront Taylor about this question of can we have suffrage activities on campus? She was a junior, had spent time with Milton suffragists in England as well, the summer before. And he said no. And she invited, indeed, Harriet Stanton Blanche and Blanche's organization who were campaigning for suffrage in New York. So Milhan invited them to come right before graduation. And when Taylor said no, she led a group of students across the street. Okay, we're not gonna have it on campus, but we're gonna have it across the street. And it was well publicized in the press. and. The speakers reflected what Mark was talking about, the connection between this was a rally for suffrage, but the speakers were people like Charlotte Perkins Gilman, who promoted suffrage, but a variety of issues of importance to women. was also a socialist. Rose Schneiderman, active in the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union, fighting for garment workers. And so Harriet Stanton Blatch herself spoke, but you could see the connection between these issues there. And ultimately, that confrontation and the subsequent pushing on the part of students and faculty against Taylor would lead to his to, to retire. Yeah, Mark, do you want to add anything to that about the suffrage in the cemetery? Just that we have a, a little bit on this in the exhibit. In the aftermath of that, Harriet Stanton Blatch and okay. President Taylor engaged in a rather spirited exchange of views in the letter section of newspapers, where Blatch thought Taylor was accusing her of nefarious activities, and Blatch was responding as one would expect to such accusations. So I'd like to thank you, Mark and Miriam, for coming to the Library Cafe today to talk about the library exhibit, which is entitled Vote for Women, Vassar in the Politics of Women's Suffrage, honoring the centenary of the 19th Amendment passed into law in 1920. And the exhibit's up and people can get to it from the website of Library Cafe at library-cafe.org. So thanks both of you. For coming. Thank you so much for your interest and for helping us talk about it. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much.